All right, well, you can keep your Bibles open to Romans chapter 3, the passage that David and Catherine read for us. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, that's okay, We'll, we'll have it all up on the screen. But if you are here for maybe the first time during the Advent season, the first time in a while, we are going through a series throughout Advent through the names of Isaiah 9-6. So it's what Anna read for us earlier. And in this, we, you know, the, the, the kind of history here, the, the context of this passage is that Isaiah is writing to a group of people who are living in darkness. And they are looking for a light. It is a dark time. They know that they are inevitably about to be invaded by one of the superpowers of their day. Um, they have, there's a lot of foolish leaders. They have turned away from God. It is a rough time. And Isaiah responds to that with a birth announcement. And the birth announcement is 700 years early. He's writing about a child who will come in 700 years who we know as Jesus. And it says this, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so this morning we're going to take that last one, Prince of Peace. We've worked through the other three. So we're going to to close out Advent by talking about that last phrase, that last name, Prince of Peace. And I think I've got to do some work here on what these words mean. I want to start with, with, with Prince. Okay, we're Americans. We don't get princes, right? So I want you to think, when you think prince, what comes to your mind? You know, I'm a, I'm a 31-year-old American man who probably cares about the British royal family more than I should. I don't know. I like the crown. It's good. Um, so when I think prince, I think Prince Harry or Prince William, right? Like that, that's what comes to my mind. Maybe you're a Disney princess person, so you think Prince Charming. That, that comes to your mind. Maybe you're a musician, and you think prince, right? Like that's your, you're thinking, like, not, not even, no royalty. Just royalty, I guess, in rock or whatever. But, but you think of that kind of prince. What I want to point out here is that, that when we tend to think of, of prince, we think of something ceremonial. Right? It actually doesn't, the prince we think of doesn't tend to have much power, if we're actually, you know, thinking in all honesty. Or, you know, if we, if we think of prince, maybe we also think of it in, like, the Lion King route, right? The, the prince is just the person who just can't wait to be king. Like that's what it's about. The prince is the, the king in waiting, so the prince has no power. He's just waiting till the day that he finally will have power. But here's what you, you need to see. When the Bible says Jesus is the prince of peace, you've got to get all that out of your head. Okay? None of, no, just none of it. Scrap it. No, no Prince William, no Prince Charming. That's not what the Bible's talking about. Most of the time, this Hebrew word that is translated prince when it is translated other places, it is translated as commander or captain. And it's almost always in the context of a war. Okay? So this is a captain or a commander in a war. It refers to someone who is powerful, someone who is triumphant. Okay? So we can't think Prince William. We have to think warrior. Okay? That, so when you see prince, just for our, our sake today, when you see the word prince, think warrior. And notice how interesting that is. If you think warrior, notice how interesting that is what comes after it. A warrior of peace. Those two things don't go together very often, do they? But Jesus is described here as a, as a warrior of peace. And that word peace, you actually, this is probably one of the Hebrew words that you know. Maybe you've heard this. Shalom. Okay, you heard that one? Shalom. Okay. So this is, this is the Hebrew word 
for peace. So he is the, the warrior of Shalom. So let's talk about that one. When we, when we go through scripture, Shalom is actually a big theme throughout it. The, the, this topic of Shalom. And it's interesting, for most of scripture, like 99.9999%, we see a very big lack of Shalom. <laughs> there, there is not much peace. But we do get a couple of pictures in scripture of what shalom actually looks like. And so I want you to think back with me to the first two pages of the Bible. Okay? So the creation narrative. You remember this? So in, in the creation narrative, we get this story where God creates man and woman in his image to, to reflect him, to represent him. And Adam and Eve, in, in the first two chapters, after they, are, after they are created, are living in shalom. Okay? So when you picture shalom, picture that. It's universal peace, universal flourishing. Think about this. They're experiencing peace with God. They, they walk in the garden, and who walks with them? Can you picture that? Isn't that amazing? God, just walking, taking a stroll in the garden. They experience peace with each other. You know, there was no passive-aggressive comments in the garden. Adam never slept on the couch in the garden. Like, isn't that amazing, right? You have this, this married couple who are living in complete peace and flourishing with each other. And it even goes to creation. There's peace with all the animals. You remember God walks all the animals by Adam and has him name them? And when he's naming the tiger, it doesn't want to eat, its, eat his face off, right? It doesn't want to tear him to shreds. There's, there's peace even amongst creation in the garden. So shalom is universal peace and flourishing. We could summarize it like this. Shalom is how we know things should be. Shalom is, is the way that we, we know deep in our heart. I think Christian or non-Christian, I think most of us have this longing inside our heart for shalom. Do you see this? I mean, if you actually pay attention, this drives a lot of our politics, right? It, it's a conversation or often a, a yelling at each other debate about how we achieve shalom, how we achieve universal flourishing and peace. We, we all have this deep down in our soul, whether we've heard of Jesus or not, or whether we've rejected Jesus or not, we have this deep down in our soul where we want this kind of flourishing. We want what Adam and Eve had. But if you know your Bible, what happens? <laughs> it's not long. Things don't stay that way. <laughs> Genesis 3 comes and things don't stay that way. Adam and Eve rebel against God and sin enters the picture. And here's how I want you to think about what that did. This is, this is my favorite, or one of my favorite at least, definitions of what sin is. It's from a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga. He says sin is this. Sin is the vandalism of shalom. That's what sin is. The vandalism of shalom. So we have this, this flourishing. Everyone, yeah, with God, with each other, with the animals. And sin is like taking graffiti and just spraying it all over that beautiful thing. You still see, you, you can kind of see through the graffiti and see, still see some of the goodness, right? But it's vandalized. That's what sin is, the vandalism of Shalom, the, the peace, the flourishing, it went away. Sin messed up their relationship with God. It messed up their relationship with others and other human beings. What happens with their sons? Right? One of their sons kills one of their other sons. 
And the Bible tells us, Romans 8, Paul says that it actually disrupts all of creation. Creation groans because shalom has been vandalized. And then if you know your Old Testament, you keep reading and do things get any better? No. No, right? It, it, it often seems like this constant spiral. Romans 3, what we just read, says, no one is righteous, no, not one. That is basically a summary statement of the Old Testament. Isn't it? No one is righteous, no, not one. Go back. The next time, okay, if you're doing your, your Bible in a year reading plan, right, coming up, if, you, if, that's, if that's your thing, and you're reading, I want you to pay attention. Take that question into the Old Testament. No one is righteous, no, not one. It's really interesting because as you're reading, there will be these certain points where you're like, is he righteous? Is she righteous? Like, this may be the one. Okay? This may be the one who actually is righteous. And then it isn't long, they totally blow it. Right? King David is a great example of that. Right? There's so much of David's life where we say, this could be it. It's not. Spoiler alert, it's not. That's the story of the Old Testament. And you probably know this continues to us today. Shalom has been vandalized, and we experience the effects of that every single day. We lack peace in our world. That's, I don't have to tell you that. Right? We lack peace in our world. Um, you know, I, they say that when a man turns 30, he gets into one of two things really seriously, either smoking meat or World War II. Right? Like, you turn 30 as a man, you've got to choose. Smoking meat, World War II. For me, it's been World War II. Okay, so I, you know, I'm, I'm all about it, Band of Brothers on repeat, all that stuff, right? But there's this, this new documentary type thing that Netflix released uh, where they took all this World War II footage and they updated it and they colorized it and it's really amazing. Like you forget that this, this happened um, almost 100 years ago at this point. And so I'm watching that because again, 31, right? All about World War II now. And so I'm sitting on the couch. I'm watching this. I'm binging this, trying to get it done as quick as I possibly can. And the episode about D-Day came up. And I've seen D-Day scenes my whole life on stuff, right? Like, I mean, my dad had Saving Private Ryan playing in the background, like when I was growing up. Probably shouldn't have been. I don't know. But, you know, I'm, I'm seeing all this as I'm walking through as a kid. Like, I remember these scenes, you know, seeing that as like a, as like a seven-year-old. So I've seen that, but, but it really struck me as I was preparing this sermon and as I'm watching this scene, and you, you, you can picture that D-Day scene, right? The, these young men coming out of those boats. Like I'm just picturing when you're in there and you hear all this going on and you know that that's about to, that door's about to open and you're about to run onto that beach, that feeling that you would have. And so I, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm watching these bullets fly and I'm watching these 18-year-olds with dreams and families and um, just, you know, livelihoods and love image bearers of God being killed one after another. And it hit me in a different way this week. I was like, this is it. Like, this is sin. This, this, is, this is the vandalism of shalom. It, we were made for the garden. We were made to live in perfect peace with each other. Instead, this is what's happening, right? This, this, is, this, is, this is the reality. This is what sin does. So we see it all around us. But it's not just in major world events. We see it even in our families. That family dinner that you feel a little anxious about going to tonight, because <laughs> it might be awkward, and your uncle may say something a little bit, I don't know, <laughs> offensive or whatever, that's a result of sin. Okay? Like that conflict that you feel with the people closest to you, that's sin. That's the vandalism of shalom. 
And then we look around at a bunch of people who don't have peace with God. That's because of sin. It's the vandalism of shalom. Now, when we talk about sin, we like to keep it right there, right? All that stuff I just said was outwardly focused. It's out there. <laughs> but what do we know? <laughs> it's in here as well, right? I always quote this, but I, I think it's so, so funny and so witty. Um, a newspaper article once asked G.K. Chesterton, famous theologian, asked him, Chesterton, what, what's wrong with the world? And he gave a two-word reply, I am. <laughs> I am. What's wrong with the world, all that that we see in World War II, isn't just Hitler. It's in me. Right? Like, like that sin, that, that, that vandalism of shalom, it, it's vandalized my peace. It, it, it's messed me up. Okay? We are not the way that we are supposed to be. And here's the thing. Even if you're here and you wouldn't claim to be a Christian, and maybe you say, well, I don't know if that's true. Okay? I mean, I'm with you with the, the World War II stuff, but I don't know if that's true. Let me prove it to you. What is everyone going to do in about seven days? They're going to make New Year's resolutions. And what is inherent in a New Year's resolution? It's saying, I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. <laughs> okay? I think most people probably underestimate how much that is true. But we all feel this deep thing within us that says, I'm not living up to my full potential. <laughs> I'm not the way that I'm supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be doing the stuff that I'm doing, and I want to stop it. And so what is everyone going to do? They're going to try to change. Sin, it's affected all of us. And the Apostle Paul gives us a help, helpful summary of what sin does to us in Romans 3, 10 and 11. So you can look there with me, 10 and 11. Here's a good one-line kind of summary of what sin does to us. He says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. We've already seen what he said. No one is righteous. No, not one. But look what he says. No one understands. Sin makes us all dumb. Okay? It's not just wrong. It just makes us all stupid. And the stupidest thing that it makes us do is, look at this, it says, no one seeks God. Right? Like that, that's what it does to us. No one seeks God, which is the dumbest thing that we can possibly do. But that is the lie that has reverberated from the garden. Remember this, when the, when the serpent comes to Adam and Eve, he tries to convince them that they don't need God, that they know better. And that's the lie that we still all believe. So instead of running God's way, we run our own way. Instead of seeking a relationship with God, we give in to the siren call of the things of this world, whether it be money, sex, power, security, empty religion, whatever it may be. We run towards that, and if you really stop and think about it, it's the stupidest thing that we can possibly do. Okay? I love that. Great summary. Here, here's planting again. He puts it this way. He says, God is our final good, our maker and savior, the one in whom alone our restless hearts come to rest. To rebel against God is to saw off the branch that supports us. To flee from God to some far country and to search for fulfillment there is to find only black market substitutes. Instead of joy, the buzz in your temples from four or five martinis. Instead of self-giving love, sex with strangers. Instead of a parent's unconditional enthusiasm for you as a person, only the professional support of a fashionable therapist who will indeed pump up your ego whenever it loses pressure. But only wise meter is right. You see this, right? It, I love it. We're sawing off the branch that supports us. When we're running to these things, you remember Jesus in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says the Beatitudes are, here's what it looks like to truly flourish. And we say, no, nah, I'll do it my own way, right? I'll go do it how I want 
to do it. We rebel against God. We cut ourselves off from the one that truly gives us life, and we drink up the salt water of this world thinking it's going to satisfy us, and it never does. It never does. We're a little like me with sugar. Okay. I realized this last night. So um, last night, I, you know, holiday time, going to holiday parties, Christmas parties, I've just eaten a lot of sweets over the past few weeks, and I'm feeling it, right? Like, like I don't know. Like once I hit my 30s, I started feeling it a lot more. And so um, I'm feeling, and last night I, I, I sit down, the boys are in bed, and I'm sitting on the couch, and I look over at Allie, and I'm like, I got to cut out sugar. Like, this is, this is horrible. Like, I just, I do not feel good. Well, I think 30 minutes go by. Allie starts making the chocolate chip cookies for Santa. What you got there? <laughs> right? Like, I make my, make my way over, eat about three of those things with some almond milk, right? Like, but it, that's what we do, okay? Ah, oh, yeah, I got to give up sugar. No, the siren call just calls me back. That's what sin does to us. We know we need God more than anything. That's where flourishing is, but the siren call of something else draws us to it. We live thinking that we're the ones who know best. And when you get 8 billion people doing that, what do you get? Our world, <laughs> right? Like, like that is the story of our world. You get the world we live in. Paul says this, verses 15 through 17 in Romans 3, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Sin makes us all about us. Right? Sin makes us curve inward on ourselves. And so what happens when you get 8 billion sinners on the earth and we're all wanting what we want? You get violence because people get in the way of that. And maybe you think, that's not me, okay? I'm not a very violent person. I'm not an angry person. Think of the last time someone got in the way of something you desperately wanted. How did you respond? How did you respond? We see that play out on the international stage and in the war and conflict we talked about, but we also see it in our own hearts every single day. Now, let me stop there, okay? Let me, let me say what you might be thinking at this point. We'll wrap up soon. Let me say what you might be thinking. This is not the Christmas Eve ser service I came for. <laughs> this is not what the sermon's supposed to be about, right? Like, this is supposed to be about shepherds and angels and all that good stuff, right? You just came to hold a candle and sing Silent, Silent Night, right? Like, why are we doing the bait and switch with the whole sin thing? But I have to say this because we can't fully understand what Christmas is about and what makes it so amazing if we don't understand this. If we don't understand the problem with us, the problem with our world, we can't understand how amazing it is what Jesus Christ did. We have to understand our condition to understand what the Prince of Peace did when he came. And let me tell you what he did. You know what he did? The Prince of Peace came to make war. Okay? That's what he did. When that baby, think, think about this, that baby in the manger is a warrior. And he came to make war. And I, let me give you my, I'll, I'll do this quickly. I'm going to give you one of my favorite stories of this. And, and I, I love, this is literally my favorite story in the Bible. I looked, I haven't used it at all in 2023, so I have to sneak it in to a sermon before it turns over and then I can use it a couple weeks from now. But John 11, John 11, um, it's the story of Lazarus. Remember this story? Okay, so Lazarus has, has died. And Lazarus, along with his sisters, Mary and Martha, are three of Jesus' best friends. 
And so there's a lot of stuff that happens, but ultimately Jesus ends up at the tomb of Lazarus. And I want you to use your imagination if you, if you don't mind. Try, try your best to go here. Okay, go to the scene. Picture this. You have this tomb, and Lazarus is in it, and it's covered. And you know, in this culture, they wouldn't hold their grief in. They're weeping, and they're wailing. It would have been a very loud affair. Okay, it would be like a packed house at Christmas time with all the family members in there, and everyone's screaming and all that, but they're, they're weeping and wailing around this tomb. And Jesus is, is standing there. Lazarus has been dead four days, and he's looking over, and he sees Lazarus' sisters, who he loves so much, Mary and Martha, and they're weeping. They're crying. Remember, they, they've lost their brother, but not only that, they're in a culture where there would have been a lot of questions about how they're possibly going to fend for themselves. Okay? Lazarus probably would have been the breadwinner. He would have been the ones to protect them and bring home the money in this culture. So they're thinking, not only have we lost our brother, what's going to happen to us? And Jesus is here in this scene, and it's interesting. You, you, know, you probably know what ends up happening. Okay? He, he gives Lazarus life, but he does this really amazing thing first. He stands in front of the tomb, and the story tells us twice in our translations, it says, he was deeply disturbed. And we read that and we think, well, yeah, of course. I mean, this is a chaotic scene. Of course he's deeply disturbed. But here's what's interesting. That, that, that phrase, deeply disturbed, is actually not very strong compared to what actually the Greek is getting at. That phrase, deeply disturbed, was a phrase that was used to describe what a war horse does before going into battle. Can you picture this? So you have two armies facing each other, and you have some guys on horses, and they're getting the horse as riled up and mad as they possibly can to charge in the battle. So that horse, it, it's literally when you're so angry that you snort. You ever been there? When you, when you are so mad and frustrated and focused on something that you just start snorting. You're that angry. To make, a, to make a Christmas tie-in here, because I noticed this a couple days when we were watching it, if you go watch Elf, okay, you'll see this. When they call the Central Park Rangers and they're going in to go get Santa, what does it show? That big horse up on its hind legs snorting. And what you know is that horse is focused. That horse is mad. That horse is about to make war. Can you picture Jesus? Jesus is standing there in front of his friend, who's dead in that tomb, and he knows in a couple minutes he's going to be alive again. But he is snorting angry because this is not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus knows that. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Shalom has been vandalized. Jesus knows what things are supposed to be like. He's saying, this is not it. My friend should not be weeping. My friend should not be dead. And so he's angry at Satan. He's angry at sin. He's angry at death, and he's going to take action. He's going to take action. He's going to make war in order to get Shalom back. But how does he do it? How does the warrior of peace do it? A lot of people thought he was going to gather up an army and take over the Romans. Right? Get them out of here. Is that what he does? No. The warrior of peace instead lets a bunch of Roman soldiers take a crown of thorns and jam them into his skull. The, the warrior of peace instead allows them to whip him almost to the point of death. The warrior of peace instead allows them to mock him and spit on him 
and make fun of him. And they raise him up, but not on a throne like a king. They raise him up on a criminal's cross. But here's what I want you to see. That's him making war. <laughs> Anyone who looks at that would say, this guy, okay, he ain't it. No one is righteous, no, not one. This guy's dying just like the rest of them. He's a criminal just like the rest of them. But no, he's making war because what happened three days later? He rose again victorious. The prince of peace rose again victorious. And why did he do it? Why did he do it? So that we can have peace ourselves. Jesus was willing to live a life without shalom, to enter into our sinful world so that one day we can have peace. One day we can have ultimate peace, but so also that we can have peace right now. What kind of peace? First of all, peace with God. That's the big one, right? Peace with God. I've heard it said this way. The gospel in four words is Jesus in my place. The, the prince of peace came, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve, and if we trust in him, we can have a relationship with God. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's the first thing he did. He also came so that we can have peace with others. Now, now here's the interesting thing. Not with everyone, because you remember what also Jesus said? He said, I come to bring a sword. And I'm going to come and I'm going to bring a sword. And he may tear apart some families because some are going to follow him and some won't. But what does he call us to in the Sermon on the Mount? To be peacemakers. So he is coming to send us out into the world as agents of shalom. When Christians enter, and we're about to light these candles, when Christians enter, we enter into the world as light in the darkness. And we go out as agents of shalom. When we walk into a room, when we walk into a community group, when we walk into a workplace, when we walk into a school, we should be peacemakers. We should bring with us peace. Right? Because there's no group of people that's perfect. All have been affected by uh, sin. All the shalom has been vandalized. But when we come in, do you remember we talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount? When we come in, we're water purifiers. Okay? We're water purifiers. What does a water purifier do? The toxicity comes in. The gossip, the backbiting, the scapegoating, all that comes in. But it doesn't get transmitted if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus. It doesn't get transmitted. You take that in, you transform it, and you give out love and peace. That's our goal, right? To transform it and give out love and peace. We are called to be agents of peace. And finally, Jesus gives us peace within ourselves. Peace within ourselves. Now, let me, let me admit this. I, I've been very open um, throughout the years that one of my struggles uh, tends to be anxiety. Okay? And I will say, I always bring this up, I want to say I've seen so much improvement over this in the last few years. Praise God, right? Of just being able to lean in Him, seeing improvement of how sanctification works. So praise God for that. But, I, you know, still, there's times, I've seen it during this Christmas season where, where I have that low bubbling of anxiety, right? Maybe you understand this, right? That, that kind of low bubbling that just never goes away. It feels like it's almost always there. It's that kind of constant companion. Here's what I found in myself, okay? And I'm, this is, I'm just going to speak for me. Maybe this doesn't apply for you, okay? Maybe your anxiety is something different. But here's something I found in myself. When I'm lacking peace, when I'm struggling always with that low-grade anxiety, it's typically because I have a worship problem. That's it. I have a worship problem. It goes back to Romans 3. No one seeks God. My problem in those moments is that I am worshiping something that isn't God. 
And the problem is, we're all worshipers. Okay? No, one, no one's exempt from that. Whether you're a Christian or not, you worship something. But here's the problem. Most things that we worship eat us alive. So typically when I'm struggling with peace, it is because I'm worshiping something I shouldn't. Think about this. Here's just a few examples. If you worship your appearance, if you worship being attractive, then what's inevitably going to happen? You're going to age. And every time you look in the mirror and you see another wrinkle, you're going to die a little bit inside. So it becomes impossible to have peace. If you worship money, what's going to happen? You'll never feel like you have enough. You'll have this number out there. Well, if I have this much in my retirement account, then I'll have peace. Does it ever work that way? I wouldn't know, but, but does it ever work that way? I hear it doesn't. I hear it doesn't work that way. I hear you just constantly want more. If you worship your family, you're always going to be disappointed. They're always going to let you down. Your kids are never going to be what you want them to be. Your spouse is never going to be what they want you to be, and it will drive a wedge between you and them. If you worship being smart, what happens when someone smarter than you walks in the room? You die inside, <laughs> and you feel really dumb. You feel like you're the dumbest person in the room. You see this. If we are worshiping something else aside from Jesus, it totally eats us alive because we can never be satisfied. So, of course, we walk around with that little bubbling of, of anxiety at all times. Here's how Augustine put it. He put it beautifully. He said, God alone is the place of peace that cannot be disturbed. God alone is the place of peace that cannot be disturbed. That's where we put our hope. Let me close with this. Okay. So that's talking about the peace that we feel within our, ourselves, others, uh, with God. So that's kind of dealing with us personally. But here's the thing. Maybe, maybe you're left with this question. Uh, what does that do for the world? Okay. Because I, I, can, I can figure all that stuff out, but what, what about all the wars that we see? What about everything that we see on the news, all the stuff going on? What, what's the solution for that? How, how do we get peace there? Well, here's the, here's a, uh, you know, I have to thank these, these guys from this coffee shop for giving me this illustration. Um, I was at a coffee shop this week working on this sermon, and there were these three older guys sitting at the table behind me. And they were in a really interesting theological conversation. And I started to hear what they were talking about, and everything in me wanted to go sit at their table and talk. Like, I was dying. But I'm like, I'm not actually supposed to be hearing what they're talking about because that's rude, but, like, my AirPods weren't working, so I had to, right? So I'm just like, I'm dying because I just want to go enter into this conversation. And then, um, as they're talking about this, one of them, they, they very quickly switch the subject, and one of them talks about a trip he took recently to New York City. And he gave me the perfect sermon illustration for this. So praise God for him. Because he started telling this interesting thing that he found. He said um, he went to Rockefeller Center. So if you've been to New York City, you've seen this, right? So Fifth Avenue, Rockefeller Center, there's this beautiful statue outside of Atlas. You remember this? Okay, here, here's, the, here's the picture, I think. So that's Atlas, right? So Atlas is carrying the, the world on his shoulders. Now here's what's interesting. I did some research this week. Um, Actually, the way the story goes, this is from Greek mythology, Zeus punishes Atlas, and actually what he says is that Atlas has to carry the whole sky on his shoulders, right? He has to carry the heavens on his shoulders. But over the years, it's gotten a little bit mixed up, and we tell the story that Atlas carries the world on his shoulders. And so that phrase, feeling like the world is on your shoulders, comes from this story of Atlas. He, he's punished to have to carry everything on his shoulders. 
Now, here's what's interesting. Don't you feel like that sometimes? Like that. Like, don't you relate to that? Especially maybe here at Christmas time. Don't you feel like everything is just on your shoulders? Maybe even things that, that shouldn't be. Maybe you're, you're taking all the world's problems on your shoulders, right? Social media is really helpful about this because we see everything that's going on and we take it on our shoulders. Here's the other interesting thing. You know what's across the street from Atlas? St. Patrick's Cathedral. Maybe you've walked past that, right? This big, beautiful cathedral on Fifth Avenue. So you have Atlas and it's facing St. Patrick's Cathedral. Now here, here's the, the fascinating thing. So, so in St. Patrick's Cathedral, they set up their own statue of this little child. You'll see it here. So you can kind of see it at the front. That's the little child Jesus with a lot paler skin than he probably actually had and blonde hair, but, you know, probably not accurate there. But you can't really see it really well, but, but maybe you can see in his left hand there, he's holding something. You know what it is? The world. The world. What a great dichotomy. It often feels like we're Atlas, holding the world on our shoulders. Not like what? Like we can't have peace because look at all this that's just constantly on us, weighing down on us. But what's the reality? The little child, Jesus, that we celebrate at Christmas, what's he doing? Holding the world in his hand. Holding the world in his hand. And let me tell you, he's good. Okay? He's good. We can't always understand what he's doing, but we can trust him. We can trust him because he's proven how good he is. He's proven his love for us by the life he lived and the death he died. See this? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the, the beauty of this message here on Christmas, that you do hold the world in your hands, that you are in control, that even though we are so tempted to lack peace, to be anxious, to have that constant bubbling up of anxiety, we can know that we have a God who loves us, we have a God who's powerful enough to take care of us, and we have a God who tells us, you told us in the Sermon on the Mount, not to be anxious, not to be anxious to, to look at the birds, to look at the flowers and see how you take care of them and so we can do the same and trust in you. Lord, as we go into this, this busy couple days coming up, I pray that you will just make us a people who are at peace with you, are at peace with each other, we're peacemakers, and also are at peace in ourselves, trusting that you have come. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.